You are listening to the MythMaker Podcast Network. Welcome to the Joseph Campbell Foundation Podcast, Pathways with Joseph Campbell. I'm your host, Bradley Olson. On this podcast, we will be sharing archived audio lectures given by Joseph Campbell over the course of his teaching and lecturing career. This lecture was given by Joseph Campbell in New York City at Cooper Union in 1964. In it, he describes the function of ritual. Like most of Campbell's talks, it's sprinkled with humor and current events, making myth and ritual relevant to us right here and right now. You may be interested to hear Campbell talk about how ritual creates an individual who, as he puts it, possesses a sensibility appropriate to the society in which the individual lives and becomes a being on which the society can depend. But it is important to Campbell that one not unquestioningly take on the patterns of the past, but also identify the creative aspects and principles of creativity inherent in them. He discusses what happens when rituals are degraded, or regress in complexity and form. And finally, as only Joseph Campbell can do, he touches on matters of ultimate concern with beauty, grace, and fascination. So please enjoy this 1964 lecture on the functions of ritual. And immediately following his talk, I'll be back with some final remarks to talk about some of the important ideas from the lecture and provide historical context for what were then contemporary events that Professor Campbell referred to in his talk. The function of ritual, as I understand it, is to give form to human life, form in depth. In the traditional societies, the sense of depth was rendered through a religious attitude in the formulation of all the patterns of life. In our world today, the religious mood is reserved for certain special occasions. Nevertheless, in the patterns of secular life, I would say ritual survives it survives, for example, in our procedures this evening. It survives in the attitudes of people as they sit down to table together. All life is structure. On the biological plane, one can observe that the more elaborate the structure, the more demanding and differentiated the higher the life form. The structure through which the energies of the starfish are rendered is considerably more complex than that of an amoeba. And as you come up the line, say to the chimpanzee, the complication and extent of differentiation in the aspects of the pattern increase. So also, I would hold in human life as well. 
the rather crude notion that energy and strength is represented and rendered through breaking structures is refuted by all that we know about the history of life and of society. Now the structures and patterns of the animal inhere in the nervous system itself. By and large, the so-called releasing mechanisms in the central nervous system of the animal world are, as they say, stereotyped. The responses are consistent within the species from animal to animal. And the intricacy of some of these naturally fixed patterns is simply amazing. To take simply one example, the pattern of nest building in some of the uh, more complicated nest building processes of certain birds. For example, the oriole building this hanging nest. Or again, even in the insect world or the arachnid world, the um, spider web, when you see a beautiful symmetrical spider web, the sense of tension and all that's there. All of this is an inherited pattern inherent in the animal itself. The human species is distinguished by the fact that its releasing mechanisms or action mechanisms in the central nervous system are for the most part open. They are modified fundamentally through the imprintings of the society in which the individual grows up. In biological terms, the human infant is born many years too soon. It acquires its human character, upright stature, the ability to speak, under the influence of a specific culture context. One can say that this imprinting from the culture actually is interjected into the psychological structure of the human individual so that the patterning which in the animal world is biologically inherited is matched by the patterning in the human world that is imprinted on the individual during the course of the first 12 years or so of his growth and development. The uh, observation of the early nature of the human birth, so that for years it is completely dependent on the parent, has led to comparisons on the part of animal psychologists to the situation of the marsupial, for example, the kangaroo, which gives birth to its little ones something like 18 days after conception. And this tiny little unready creature then crawls by itself into its mother's pouch, where it fixes itself to a nipple and remains in, so to say, a second womb, a womb with a view.
The uh, development of the mammal, or as we say, the placental animal, involved a biological crisis that made it possible for the uh, child to remain in the womb until practically ready to support itself. And so we find most little animals able to take care of themselves pretty well. Some almost immediately after birth and others within a few weeks. But then another leap forward, so to say, was established with the human species. And again, we're born too soon. And instead of the pouch, we have the home, which is again a sort of marsupial second womb. It is during this period, as I say, that the imprintings are established. But it is during this period also that a system of responses of dependency is established. The individual responds to the challenges of life by turning to his parents for support, for advice. However, if one is to become an adult, the response system must radically change from attitudes of dependency to attitudes of responsibility. And one of the first functions of rights, particularly the puberty rights in primitive societies and the rights of education in our own, is to transform the response system of the established psyche from responses of flight to the parent to responses of responsibility and adulthood. Now, this is not an easy work to achieve. And it can be said that the neurotic, essentially, is an individual who has not gone altogether over that threshold. The stimuli that ought to evoke in an adult responses of responsibility evoke responses, on the contrary, of flight to protection. And the individual has to say to himself, come on now, act your age. He has continually to correct the spontaneities of his system. And in brief, this is the situation of neurosis. Such a person tends to blame his own troubles on either his parents or the parent substitute, namely the state, the society in which he lives. Whereas one of the requirements of a society, of an organically functioning society, is that the individuals should constitute it. No adult in a home would blame the condition of the home on his grandparents who are not in there. The adult is the one who assumes responsibility for the situation and himself represents it, not blaming it on someone else. Socially regarded then, the first function of the rights of puberty is to establish in the individual a system of sentiments that will be appropriate to the society in which he is living and on which 
the society can depend. Now, in our modern society, the society of the West, the contemporary West, there is a new complication here because we ask something still more of the adult. Not that he should simply accept without personal criticism and judgment the ritual patterns, the habits, the inherited customs of his society, but that he should develop what Freud called a reality function, the function of the independent, freely thinking ego, and himself estimate values, and himself criticize and create, not simply reproduce the patterns that have been inherited, but become himself an initiating center, a creative center for a life process. Our ideal of society is not that it is a perfectly static organization founded in the age of the ancestors and to remain unchanging for all time. It is rather of a process moving toward a fulfillment of ideals and possibilities for humanity that have not yet been realized. And each of us is expected to be an initiating center. So we have the problem, actually, not simply of taking over the patterns from the past, but while taking those over, identifying and recognizing the creative aspects and principles of creation that inhere in them so that they can be carried forward. This is a particular charge, a particular difficulty placed upon us as modern Occidentals. And I think it is unique to modern Occidental society, which as far as the uh, uh, social scene now shows, is the only creative society in the world. The problem, therefore, is not simply to remain on the level of earlier human biology or sociology, but to move on to represent a progress forward. However, one notices in the world since about 1914, a growing disdain for and rejection of ritual patterns. There is a curious sort of sentimentalism, I call it the sort of nature boy motif, particularly in American uh, life, and still more particularly in American life abroad. We have a curious notion that people love this nature, this sort of ox. Uh, the uh, picture recently shown, I don't know how many saw it, of our ambassador to India with his uh, trousers rolled up in a paddy field, gaily plucking rice or whatever, uh, was, may have seemed rather cute to him, but actually it was an insult to the Indian uh, social order. Similarly, a report I have recently heard of the present president of the United States 
in the Taj Mahal. He was told that a sound would resonate for three minutes in that dome. And uh, as always, when one goes into the Taj Mahal, the intonations of the guide, do, da, 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 and then for three minutes you had this. Well, you can imagine what the man from Texas did. And uh, it came out grand. And uh, it had resounded, indeed, for three minutes. Now, um, this itself is a ritual pattern. Just as the elaborate ritual forms of the great Oriental societies and of the great Occidental societies, so the reduced form. It's like going back from being a chimpanzee to being a starfish. You sort of reduce the complexity and with that do not gain, but on the contrary, lose force. Another field in which one may note the deterioration of the sense of form, and this I think is even more critical than the social, because here is the field of the creation of form and the realization of it, is in the field of the arts. Now, uh, I've wondered about this. Why is it, for example, that Roman art is a less impressive, is less significant formally than Greek as a rule? And we're beginning to get the same kind of thing now. And one fine morning, I woke up with what seems to me to be a major illumination. It's this, that in a small community, the relationship of the creative artist to the recognition of his work by the community is, as it were, immediate. In a large society, the artist has to go to cocktail parties to get the contracts. And the ones who get them are the ones who go to the cocktail parties, meet the right people, and are in the right places. Consequently, they have not been working enough in the studio and are incapable of rendering a complex form. The next consequence of this is what I call instant art. The individual uh, with as little uh, formal uh, agony as possible renders something. This then is criticized by newspaper people who themselves find themselves baffled before anything really complex. I was um, awake when the reviews of Finnegan's Wake appeared, or the most complicated play of Tennessee Williams, Camino Real. That was reviewed by all the New York critics as representing just a disaster for the American theater. And if Mr. Williams went on that way, uh, he would be out. So he wanted to be in, so he did not go on that way. That was a complicated work. Almost without exception, the complex work in the first place has an extremely difficult time appearing at all simply because the person who made it wasn't meeting the right people. And in the second place, if it does appear, the reviews are its uh,
guillotine. <clears throat> now, as a result of this, we are uh, without, for the moment, conspicuous creative works that comprehend the full problem of contemporary man's creativity. I would like to mention Nietzsche's statements about romantic and classic art. These were the terms in his day that were most important in art criticism. He spoke of two kinds of classicism and two kinds of romanticism. There is the romanticism that smashes the contemporary form because there is so much real power and energy there that it has to create a form beyond these. But it does create such a form. This is the romanticism of power. There is the other romanticism which cannot match the form and smashes it out of resentment. With respect to classicism, there is the classicism that finds the achievement of the form easy and plays with it in a rich, vital way. And there is the classicism that clings to form out of weakness, but the form then holds it. I think I easily recognize this in one or another of the artist's works uh, that I happen to know, and I think most of you uh, may be able to do this as well. The point that I'm making here is that the formal principle is the field in which life manifests itself in its grand style. And the mere shattering of that is, for life, a disaster. And ritual is the forming principle for human life in general. Now, I came to realize the uh, nature of form in this context very vividly when I was in Japan and was there invited to a tea ceremony. Now, if there's anything in the world more demanding and refined than a tea ceremony, I would like to know what it is. There are all, all kinds of preliminary approaches that one has to uh, understand. One enters through a door that is exactly that high, and one must do this gracefully. This requires certain form. Needless to say, I was not up to it. The, uh, the great experience one finally gets in Japan is that uh, one cannot be right, because one has not been bred to these forms. Here is a very formal society. Then when one gets inside, there are certain things that are to be done. And the great event is the tea master serving the tea. Uh, I won't go through this, but it's to such a point refined that if he puts the, the teaspoon, the thing that he uses to put the tea into the bowl, puts it down here instead of here, it's a great mistake. Now, when one is talking with people about the tea ceremony, they speak about the spontaneity of the tea master. Then I thought about, in poetry, the sonnet. The sonnet is a very demanding form, but the poet who knows how to handle that form has acquired a power, and he can have freedom within it. And I did have the experience of watching a couple of 
masters, tea masters, and one could see there was spontaneity here. The ceremony of the civilization had become, as it were, organic to him, and he could move in it with elaboration. Now, yesterday, day before yesterday, I turned the television set on, and I saw a beautiful track meet in Los Angeles. I will say that this is the first track meet I had seen since I myself um, stopped running in 1927. And I had been intentionally not looking at track meets because they aroused such emotion. And so here is a stretch of some 30 odd years. And what I saw was a mile race with six glorious runners. And the commentator said, this is a disappointing mile. The mile was run in four minutes and six seconds with the second and third men coming in within uh, two seconds of the winner. The fastest mile that was run when I was running was four minutes and 15 seconds. People thought the world was going to fall down. I suddenly thought, well, when it's serious and when it doesn't involve cocktail parties, but when it really involves the challenge of the field and not some advertising man advertising this work against that, we still have form. We have it great. Spengler, in The Decline of the West, speaks about culture as a society in form. And the way in which one holds one's arm, the way in which one pitches one's body, every detail of athletic form is the counterpart in society of the form, the tea ceremony form or the forms of us here tonight. The destruction of the form does not yield a winner, either in the field of the mile race or in the field of culture competition. And this being a serious world, that's what we're in. Now let me take as a striking example of the nature of ritual and its function. This uh, simply stunning thing that happened the weekend after the assassination of President Kennedy. That ritual performance in Washington served a social function. This is the first thing I want to mention. The nation as a unit had suffered a shocking loss, and it was shocking in depth in a very, very uh, unanimous sense. No matter what one's feelings politically, the death of a magnificent young man representing the society that we ourselves are members of at the height of his career and all a moment of life and then death and then the appalling uh, disorder 
that comes into one's mind in relation to a thing like this required a compensatory right to reestablish the sense of solidarity within the nation, not only for us here, but also as a statement of our force and dignity in the world itself. I count the performance of the radio and uh, television companies one of the great, great things that happened. Here is an enormous nation, and during those four days, it became, as it were, a single community, all participating in an event. And to my knowledge, this is the first thing of its kind in peacetime that gave me the sense of being a member of a community participating in a significant right, the right itself functioning as a rescue. The entire sense of being an American came to many people for the first time here. It has not been fashionable in the past 20 or 30 years to raise the American flag, let's say. That puts you dangerously over on the John Birch side. The much more usual ritual is carrying a sign on a picket line. There's another ritual law cross-cutting here. But everybody at this time, I think, felt that uh, one could, with uh, dignity, recognize one's relationship to uh, this nation. The system of sentiments that is essential to our life in this civilization was very emotionally and tellingly represented for us during that time. But as I regarded these rights, certain extra thoughts came to me. The function certainly was social, that of the normal social functions of rights, to coordinate the community, to establish and maintain a system of sentiment. I had the experience one time of driving up the curb and the little boy was standing on the curb in a very uh, stiff posture, and he said, uh, you can't park here. And uh, I looked around, and there was no reason I could see. Uh, well, why not, I said. He said, because I am a hydrant. And, uh, <laughs> I went down the block. Now, when you think of the rights of primitive people, we can see something like this. Uh, as you know, the early societies, the totemistic societies, the people gave themselves the names of animals and regarded the animals as their cousins, the totem of the turtle or the eagle or the gazelle. And in their rights, they imitated the animal world. And this rite of burial that I've just spoken of was an imitation of the plant world. And this can be observed in uh, primitive planting societies, how out of the rot and death of the plant world life comes. So in order that life should come, they kill people in human sacrifice rites and bury them as though they were plants. Uh, this game gets to be kind of serious in that case, but it still is a play. And then at the wonderful moment, when the cosmic order was recognized, and this sense of order 
in a society in the cosmos was translated to the sense of order in society, the king and the kings still do wear the solar crown. And the queen was the star Venus, and the members of the court were various planets and so forth, and this curious game of being planets was enacted. One of the most stunning representations of it in comparatively late time is in the Byzantine Empire. Read the accounts of visits to the Byzantine court, and the king himself actually uh, had a machine. His throne was uh, on a, a uh, lever that could carry him up to the ceiling. And some poor frightened person, let's say from uh, Europe or uh, Kiev, would come down and uh, there were golden lions which wagged their tails and roared on either side. And the king was dressed like the sun itself. And you bowed before the king and while your eyes were down, they elevated him to the ceiling. Next you knew, looked up, the king was there. Meanwhile, his garment had been changed and everything else. This monkey shines going on in great seriousness. St. Cyril of Alexandria addressed the uh, emperor as the image of God on earth. And uh, this was the idea. Now, originally in this play, there is a participation, a joy in the game itself. And this is the joy of what might be called disinterested action. The child is imitating a hydrant or a cowboy or whatnot. The rights imitate what is regarded as the law of the universe. And in order that the right may be significant, the law that is rendered must be cosmic law, if it is to be a cosmic law, that is proper to man's experiences today. Now let me ask in conclusion, what is the proper source of awe for man today? I was impressed many years ago by the great uh, culture historian Leo Frobenius in his work on primitive and archaic mythology by a statement he made, which has remained with me, is indicating the main course of the centers of fascination, the centers of seizure, as he calls them, at Griffenheit, that have fixed and established the ritual lore of man. In early societies, they were either the animal world among hunters or the plant world among primitive planters. In the primitive, in the period of the great archaic cultures, it was the order of the cosmos itself. As said Frobenius, in those days, it was thought that the cosmic order should become the human order. And you had a pattern for human life based on notions of divine revelation from the sky, as it is on heaven, in heaven let it be on earth. But he said, from the period of the Renaissance onward, there has been a progressive movement downward toward man. First, the animal was the neighbor, the one with whom we identified, in relationship to whom we had to establish our lives. Then there's the world of the plants. We have the mythologies of the Mother Earth. Then it is the Mathematics of the cosmos, and that is the period that gave us our seven forces, death and life. 
But he said, the neighbor now is not the animal, not the plant, not the cosmos. These have been handled scientifically. We have sciences for these. The center of mystery now is man himself. Thou, not you as I see you, but you in the mystery that's there. And the first recognition of this as the center of awe one finds in the Greek tragedies. The rights of other peoples were representations of animal, plant, or cosmic orders. But in Greece, first in the seventh and then the sixth and fifth centuries, this became man's world. The tragedy, the two great emotions, pity and terror. Joyce defines them in the portrait of the artist in a way that seems to me uh, firm. As Stephen, the hero, says very impudently, Aristotle did not define them. I should do so. Pity is the emotion that arrests the mind in the face of whatsoever is grave and constant in human suffering and unites it with the human sufferer. Terror is the emotion that arrests the mind in the face of whatsoever is grave and constant in human suffering and unites it with the secret cause. The cause of suffering is, of course, mortality itself, the mystery of man's being in the universe. And this tension between terror, the recognition of the transcendent mystery, which is the mystery of the universe, and pity, which is the sympathy for one's fellow man, constitutes the creative source from which the rights and arts of modern life post-Greek are to come. The wish to profit by what you see, or the wish to change the situation is not appropriate to this depth of vision. What one is in touch with is the secret cause, what Joyce calls the grave and constant in human experience, not what can be changed. The grave and constant in the order of the cosmos is perhaps the movement of the seven planets. But what is the grave and constant in man's life now? In the rites that we saw, this human sentiment was present. This was not just what one would have experienced in a traditional society where the whole court went into the grave. That would be another system of references. The old imagery for us now carried a new song. And it was the song, you might say, that our notion of the coffin itself, what it meant and contained, that it inspired the human sufferer, which was a theme that suffused our experience of these rites. Any of you who has uh, had experience of oriental rites knows that the human sufferer as a human 
personality is wiped out by the rites. But everything in this particular case was done to point that up so that the old bottles carried, so to say, or that was poured into them, a new wine. And that wine, I would say, is the wine of the individual personality, which this young man did represent to us all, creative, assuming responsibilities, whether one liked it or not, he did represent this courageous individual. And so in conclusion now on this theme of rights, I would simply like to terminate with a few lines of a poem that again impressed me some long time ago by Robinson Jeffers, uh, poet who sent to me at one time a great, great deal. It's a poem called Natural Music, short little thing. First, celebrating the mystery that speaks through nature in the form of the ocean and the rivers, and then the voice that speaks through the society of man as being the same voice and the one that we must learn to love and affirm in its grandeur, its grand lines, not complaining about it because it makes us unhappy or sick or nauseous, or seems absurd, putting the order of our rational ego ahead of the mystery of the, of the being that brought us forth and our rational ego with it, but affirming the majesty and nobility of the whole. Jeff's little poem runs like this. I'm omitting two obscure lines. The old voice of the ocean, the bird chatter, little rivers from different throats in tone one language and so i believe if we were strong enough to listen to the roar of the sick nations the voice of the hunger smitten cities those voices also would be clean as a child's or like some girl's breathing who dances alone by the ocean shore, dreaming of lovers. The thing about a Joseph Campbell lecture is that one never need worry about Campbell burying the lead. He began this lecture by noting that the principal function of ritual is to give form to human life. At this point, he made a brief excursus into biology and described how the structural complexity of life increases over evolutionary time. This is still accepted biological theory. The structures of living organisms are arranged from the simplest to the most complex and are organelles, cells, tissues, organs, organ systems, organisms, to populations, communities, ecosystems, and biosphere. And adding to that, there is cosmos containing it all. While he doesn't specifically mention it in this lecture, the Greek word cosmos simply means good order or something well-structured. However, it's important to note that the idea of progression and evolution, known as orthogenesis, is not a given and increases or decreases in structural complexity can be dramatically affected 
by local environmental conditions. I think this is particularly true in terms of human psychology, which can be seriously affected by poverty, abuse, pollution, poor education, and other factors. Human beings face a unique challenge to resist passively accepting the structures imposed upon them from fellow humans or from their communities and their environments. Societies want to form individuals it can rely upon to carry on its patterns and aims. But Campbell points out that individuals shouldn't blindly reproduce those patterns, but instead become oneself, a free-thinking person, as he puts it, who can recognize and utilize the creative aspects and principles inherent to the structures. At around 13 minutes into the lecture, Campbell grows critical of what he calls a growing disdain for and rejection of ritual patterns. A disdain especially noticeable, he says, in Americans traveling abroad who see other cultures as cute, amusing, or quaint, making no effort to understand the ritual life of the culture hosting them. In this 1964 lecture, Campbell is particularly critical of President Lyndon Johnson's uncouth test of the famous acoustics in the Taj Mahal. He didn't specifically state what exactly Johnson had done, but after a bit of searching, I found an oral history interview with George E. Reedy, a longtime Johnson aide who accompanied the new president on LBJ's 1961 vice presidential trip to India. In this oral history project documented by the LBJ Presidential Library, Reedy says, Somebody told him that the acoustics of the Taj Mahal were very perfect, that you would get an echo which would reproduce the original sound very faithfully. So standing in the middle of the Taj Mahal, he got up and came out with a loud Yahoo! or something like that. Reedy ends the anecdote rather lamely, saying, I think that's rather normal. Just a few months earlier, in November of the year preceding the January date of Campbell's talk, the world witnessed the extraordinary archetypal ritual of President Kennedy's funeral. A horse-drawn caisson carried the flag-draped coffin preceded by a riderless horse with black boots in reverse stirrups a motif that dates back to the time of Genghis Khan. Family and heads of state from 82 nations walked solemnly behind the casket to an ominously mournful drumbeat. It was a funeral fit for an ancient warrior king, and it called to mind lines written by the Roman poet Horace, Dulce et decorum est pro patria mori. It is a sweet and seemly thing to die for one's country. An appalling act, such as the assassination of a president, or a great catastrophe of some kind, leads to disorder and chaos, both in the individual and in the collective. The proper rite observed in the aftermath of such an occurrence provides us with comfort and solace. It transitions us to a new reality while reconstellating one's own, or the state's, power and dignity. 
Professor Campbell also pointed out that ritual serves to connect individuals to a source of awe. In various stages of human development, mystery and awe were experienced in the ritualized and thereby spiritualized relationship between humans and plants, humans and animals, even humans and the cosmos itself. In contemporary life, even though awe is still available, the relevance to human beings of those domains are largely explained by science and thereby rendered much less mysterious. The center of mystery and awe is now to be found in human beings themselves. The mystery of experience confounds and frightens us, and we tend to submit to pity and terror which unites us to, as Campbell, quoting Joyce, says, whatever is grave and constant in human suffering. And whatever is grave and constant in human suffering unites us to what Campbell called our secret cause. And what is that secret cause? The secret cause is our own destiny. Campbell writes in his book, Thou Art That, that the secret cause of your death is your destiny. Every life has a limitation, and in challenging that limit, you are bringing the limit closer to you. And the heroes are the ones who initiate their actions no matter what destiny may result. What happens is, therefore, a function of what the person does. This is true of life all the way through. Here is revealed the secret cause. Your own life course is the secret cause of your death. Now, in rituals, this perception of the grave and constant, of mortality, is always present. But death is really a secondary matter to Campbell, primarily because we are all destined to die, and how we die is not as important as how we live. The grave and constant holds some surprises, too. As he uses the word in this lecture, grave means perilous menacing, dreadful. But it also quite naturally suggests a burial plot. But here's the surprise. The word gravid shares the same root as grave and denotes a quality one can only describe as full of meaning, meaningful. Gravid also means to be pregnant. So, if we can manage to live a life that excites our passions that lends to it depth and soulfulness. We give birth to a beautiful life. Thank you for listening, and please join us next month for another Joseph Campbell talk on Pathways with Joseph Campbell. Pathways with Joseph Campbell is a production of the Joseph Campbell Foundation and the Mythmaker Podcast Network and is produced by John Booker and Elias Mirnoff. Executive producer, Robert Walter. Your host has been Bradley Olson. Editing and audio services provided by Seth Balin. Music exclusively provided by APM Music. For more podcasts and information about Joseph Campbell, please visit jcf.org. <laughs>